Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to people about the best thing to ever happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. That's because sometimes the things that have a major influence on someone's life will never show up on a resume, come up in a conversation, or appear on the internet. I'm your host, Antonio Neves, and each week I bring on a new guest who has a story to share that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. I'm so excited because this week's guest is someone I've known for 15 years. We met back in graduate school at Columbia University and have been friends ever since. For me personally, it has been so much fun to watch her journey over the years. Michelle Steele is a correspondent for ESPN based in Chicago. She's an amazing journalist and has covered some of the biggest stories in sports for SportsCenter, Monday Night Football, NFL Live, Outside the Lines, and all of ESPN's digital platforms. Now look, all of that is cool, and I really love that back in 2017, Michelle was the on-site reporter for the 2017 Scripps National Spelling Bee in Washington, D.C. Even more, Michelle's just an amazing person all across the board. Michelle Steele, welcome to The Best Thing. Thank you so much, Nevs, and You know, it's been just as much, I want to say, as of a delight, shall I call it, following your own journey from the East Coast, from the gritty streets of New York City. If we can call the Upper West Side gritty, I'm not so sure about that. But definitely the rest of New York. um, I actually was reminded the other day of our master's projects. Uh, I was driving in a suburb of Chicago called Skokie, Illinois with my mom. And we passed a Lubavitcher's temple, which is a specific sect of the Jewish religion. And we ha- there was a guy in our class who did his master's project on Lubavitcher's and it, it just flashed <laughs> in my mind, right? It just flashed in my mind for a second how much fun that experience was. And even though it was not even a full calendar year, to be honest, it was 10 months. That was such a formative experience for all of us and continues to be such a deep well, I think, of happiness and joy, really. You know, there's, I don't want to go too too long on this intro, but, you know, there is a little bit of an argument on whether or not it makes sense, quote unquote, to get a degree in journalism when you can get the same kind of experience in the field. And for, I'm going to be honest, for a lot of years after graduate school, I was really on the fence on that question, even after having the experience. But now with the benefit of kind of time and not going to lie, age as well, it has really sort of fomented the experience in my mind and my memory as a really, as a really formative one and just, just one that was really happy for me. That's what, what I'll say about that. I agree 100%. I've sent out emails with subject lines like, why my Ivy League degree is overrated? And mm. the truth is, now that I look back with some time, it pay, played such a pivotal role in who I've become, my growth, my maturity, and being challenged, also in the relationships that mm. I've made. So I wouldn't trade that for anything. And uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And as you probably heard Michelle say at the beginning, she, she said Nevs. Like, she's only called me Nevs. <laughs> Since we've known each other, and I've only called her Steel. Like I've never, I've probably called her Michelle, just like 
a handful of times. And for me, it was really cool, you know, for the audience. I mentioned all those those big names, you know, uh, Monday Night Football, Sports Center, NFL Live. But for me, what's so much fun is when I'm watching television, whether I'm on a plane or at home, and, and you pop on the screen. For me, it's just steel. Yeah, I, I know you're talented, you're gifted at what you do, and um, and you can do what so many people could only wish of dreaming. But for me, it's like, that's just steel. And I love that. So props on, on everything you've accomplished. Yeah, thank you. And I love I love getting those texts from you. You know, you'll literally be on an airplane and you're the one pulling out your phone, which, by the way, no shame in that game. I love that. You pull out your phone and take a picture and send it to All me. The time. So I appreciate that. But I think, you know, going back to kind of one of the reasons I'm on today, I think that one reason that the experience of graduate school, sort of irrespective of the role that it played in our own careers. I think one reason it was such an eye-opening and I don't want to diminish it this way, but fun experience was it was the first place where I went to where I was surrounded truly by Mm. like-minded individuals. Um, You know, we both went to state universities there are these big organizations where you kind of have, it's a motley crew. It's, it's a lot of people from in-state, some people from out of state. You know, I went to University of Illinois. There were 30,000 undergraduates at the time when I went there. You kind of have to really, really work to find your own place. And Columbia was the first place that I went to and felt like, wow, I can really be safe. I agree hundred percent. And like you said, the like-minded people, when I bumped into you and I bumped into some mutual friends, I'm sure people, you know who I'm thinking about right now. I was like, I found mm-hmm. my people because, you know, there's such a, a wide array of people yeah. that go to journalism school and that are at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. They're like all these different sects, if you will, S-E-C-T-S. And you're like, you're like, nope, that's not my crew. <laughs> no, they're too serious. Nope. Then you're like, oh, there they are. And these people that have similar senses of humor <laughs> that can laugh at what's being said, find light sometime in the darkness. And uh, you're definitely that person. And I wish mm-hmm. sometimes when I see you on screen, I'm like, oh, I wish people watching this re- really knew Michelle Steele. <laughs> yeah. um, let's just keep those stories to off screen at this point. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, but it's cool. <laughs> I get to see your personality, you know, on sports. But it's true. Yeah. It's true. It's true. You, you've, yeah, you've seen the the multi, the multi facets for sure. And you know, I'm a big. It's not so much what you do, mm. but why you do it. And I think one of the reasons that I was drawn to the people that were in our class, and I think we got so lucky, Nevs. I feel like I have to call you Antonio now because you call me out for that. But one of the reasons that I think we got so lucky, Antonio, in our class was that a lot of us were drawn to journalism and to storytelling for similar reasons. Um, it was wanting to have a voice. You know, I think broadcast in particular draws a certain kind of person who wants to have a voice in the world. So that's one reason, but also somebody who has empathy for the experiences of others. You know, I think those two things 
um, were a common thread, I think, pretty much in everyone in our class. I agree 100%. And you can only call me Nevs, and I'm only going to call you Steel moving forward. <laughs> Empathy spot on, but storytelling as well. And, and that's one of the reasons why this podcast for me is so important, because as you know, I just said your name with a variety of, you know, the, of the major network associated with it, a major brand. And of course, people hear that and they're super impressed. And I've been fortunate to work with a variety of television networks over my career as well. And for so long, I found my value and who I was solely based on my job title. But I agree with you 100% as it relates to empathy and especially storytelling. I think a lot of times when we see people, we'll see someone like you and we only associate you with the brand that is ESPN or the television networks that I worked with over the years. And we only see value in job titles or our affiliations. But as I get older, I realize the real value is in those things that don't show up on a resume, those things that don't always naturally come up in conversation. And that's why I'm really excited to talk to you today a little bit about some of those topics. So are you ready to dig in? Let's do it. So Michelle, what would you say is one of the best things to happen to you that doesn't include one of those traditional markers of success. You know, when people talk about the best thing, they'll say, oh, graduating from college or buying a house or getting Mm -hmm. married, having kids, something like that. But if Mm -hmm. you can't include some of those traditional things, what what would you say is one of them? Well, this is directly related, actually, to the conversation that we've just been having about feeling that you can be completely yourself the way that I think we were in a lot of ways in graduate school and being surrounded with like-minded individuals. I mean, that was certainly a formative experience, an important one, but that is not how the world is. And I remember, this is going to be, by the way, a little bit of a circuitous story, but it's, it's, it's worth it. Stick with me. So when I was graduating college, I really did not want to work, (laughs) but I needed to, I needed to pay my bills, but I really did not want to start kind of in the working world. I really wanted to travel. I really wanted to experience while I was young, as much as kind of the world had to offer. And so I was lucky enough that I was taking a French class in college and the professor at the time had asked, French was my minor, professor at the time had asked, you know, what are you going to be doing after you graduate? And I said, to be honest, like putting off my career for as long as possible. And he said, why don't you just apply for this, you know, apply for this essentially like fellowship, but it was paid that the State Department and the Education Department in France ran this partnership program where Americans or at least English speakers were sent to France and French territories to teach English. So I applied for it. I got it. I was really fortunate to have gotten it. Had zero clue what it would entail, had zero clue how to teach a class, had zero clue what it would actually mean like to move everything overseas in like a couple of suitcases and start my life, basically, uh, all over again, meet new people, new friends, everything, you know, leave my family back in Chicago, who I'm, you know, very close to. So I moved, I moved to France for a year. And then after that, I had such a great time. I taught high school, which was funny, because I wasn't that much older than my students, I would see them at the bars at night, um, which is a great (laughs) thing about France, by the way. And then I would apply for a second year, but I, I, you know, told myself, I really want to challenge, you know, Europe is nice. It's really wonderful. It's like the beginning of, you know, Beauty and the Beast, where she comes out every day with a loaf of baked bread or something. I really wanted a different space, a different, a change of venue. So I went to Martinique 
So um, for those of you who don't know, Martinique is in the lower Antilles. And for those of you don't who don't know, like me, before I moved there, the lower Antilles is basically as far out as you can get in the Caribbean. It is closer to Venezuela than it is to Miami. Um, and at the time, you know, I was intrigued by this assignment. I, I figured that I would get maybe like Tahiti or someplace in French Polynesia. I was actually kind of happy that, you know, I could get there from, from the United States pretty straightforwardly. There wouldn't be a crazy amount of time difference. So I remember flying into Martinique. It, you fly down there. It's hot. I really didn't know what to expect because the only times I'd been in, been to the Caribbean, it had been on like family vacations. We went on a Disney cruise one time where you stop on like an island in the Bahamas. And to me, the Caribbean was really a monolith. It was like a vacation playland. I didn't have really any sense of the culture other than it was there for American tourists to just be in and visit. I really did not know about how really multicultural the Caribbean is. Um, every single island has its own history. Every single island you could be speaking, you know, whether it's Creole or straight up French, like they did in Martinique with, a, or at least like a, a mix of French and Creole. You could be speaking Spanish, English, Pidgin English, what have you. Um, so that was just a wonderful experience um, to get to see up close. But all this to say, so the night I got there, my um, the professor who was responsible for me just screwed up and she did not know like what flight I was coming in on. And by the way, I am almost embarrassed to say this, but this is like before, this is like right around cell phones, but like not everyone had a cell phone. Right. <laughs> this is like 2002, you know, you know what I'm saying? So I um, got there and there is nobody at this airport. Wow. To pick me up, you know, and I had no idea what to do. I think I had, I don't even know if I had a credit card, honestly. Like, I don't even know if I had an ATM card. I might have had like traveler's checks. I don't know. Or maybe I had cash. So I see this girl who's speaking English. She's like around my age. And I go up to her and I just say, Hey, do you know anybody? <laughs> do you know anybody? Period. <laughs> Cause I know zero people. So. She's like, oh, you know what? Um, it's funny that you say that because uh, I actually just got here a couple days ago, and um, you know, my professor, I'm going to be teaching English, and I was like, oh, okay, that's you know, that's me too. I'm going to be teaching English in a grade school, and we. She's like, I'm actually my professor did not pick me up either. I'm staying at this guy's house, so we go to and and Nevs. I still remember this guy's name, so she gestures over to this guy standing in the middle of a busy airport. He's wearing like kind of a white fedora type cap and oh, like no. one, yeah, like a guayabara, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Those like Cuban shirts. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I just yeah. love the whole notion of this guy's house. This I'm staying at this guy's house. He's wearing a guayabara. It's all white. His outfit is all white. And he turns around and his name was Veneran. Ragu. <laughs> Ragu. R-A-G-U. You know what? Shout out. He's in his probably 60s uh, at that time. So he's a lot older now. So he was in his 60s at that time. He seemed like a kindly old gent. Um, he was Martinique, as they say. He was from the island. And he was like, if you need a place to stay, 
you know, until your professor comes and picks you up, you can stay with me. I have a guest, I have guest rooms. Every single, like I'm from Chicago, right? Every single cell in my body was like, don't stay at a random's house. (laughs) Do not do this. But then the other part of my brain was like, well, what are you going to do? Right. So I went to Mr. Ragu, Monsieur Ragu, and I swear we were driving. This is a small island, okay? We were driving. It must have been an hour. I was like, you know, Martinique, you drive an hour. You're like in the ocean. It's a small island. But he lived in the middle of the forest, it seemed. Like he really lived inland. Anyway, so we had a par- he had a party that night because he had guests. You know, and it's so crazy, like how cynical I think we are, maybe as people who live in big cities, but maybe also as Americans where we just don't trust each other. When you live on an island, you're forced to trust each other. Mm. You can't leave. So we went there that night and I'm talking to he barbecued a goat for us, which, by the way, I was like back then I was like, oh, that's okay. And then now in retrospect, I'm like, man, that guy really pulled the stops out for us. That's funny. That was so nice what he did. So we barbecued a full blown goat. He had like a, you know, freezer or something in the back. He had a house that was like very indoors, outdoors, and the outdoors was like the jungle. So he had a bunch of people over and I just remember, so we were having these little like ramen ice things. I made sure to only have one. I'm pretty sure I only had one. Um, you know, and one of his friends goes, I'm going to say it in French, not because I want to sound pretentious, but just because it sounds cool. And he, he said, tu sais qui va sauver le monde, c'est le métissage. And in English, it means, do you know what's going to save the world? Um, le métissage means mix, mixing, mm. like ethnicities mixing, because everybody in Martinique is mixed pretty much, you know? And I didn't realize it then what a profound comment it was. You know, I think there was just like so much going on. But I think, and I really didn't think about that until maybe the last few years when so many of these points around multiculturalism, um, I think we're in an inflection. We're really in an inflection point for some of these, so many of these issues because, you know, aside from, I think the way that immigrants in particular have been attacked and denigrated the last few years, um, I think minority groups overall are a lot more aware and conscious, I think, of their status and what that really means. And he's right. I think what's going to save the world is not people being separated, right? Is mm-hmm. not people living in their own silos because we're, we're driving more and more closer to a world where we, we're just going to have to figure out a way to live together. You know, Absolutely. this is right. Like just leaving the business case for diversity inclusion aside, which is something I'm very involved with at my work. And there is a tremendous business case for it. Just the case on a human level is so acute. And, you know, my whole life, I think up to that point, I've always felt like an outsider in a lot of ways. Um, Even though I grew up in the city of Chicago, and it was very diverse right? Chicago was also a segregated place, but I was lucky enough to grow up in a neighborhood that was mainly immigrants. But despite that, everybody who was in my neighborhood, they were one thing, pretty much like you were Mexican, or you were 
Chinese or you were Greek, you know? And I was the only one in my class pretty much who was not one thing. And every year I would get a question of what are you? And I was always othered, you know, and Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not saying I had a bad childhood by any means. I had a great childhood and still have good friends from that era of my life. And they didn't mean to, you know, say like, you don't mean when you're eight years old and you ask another eight year old, what are you? Like, you don't mean to other them. You don't even know what that is. But I always had a sense of I'm not whatever the majoritarian thing is. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until I got to Martinique that I felt like, okay, I'm one of the majority. It was so crazy. Like I'm one of the people who is metisse, as they say, who's actually mixed. And it was such a revelation for me and something that I haven't really thought about until flash forward to 2016. Before we flash forward to 2016, I want to go there. I'm just curious, Michelle, if you can briefly touch on your experiences. And I can relate so much when people first that someone asking that question, Okay, I know you're black, but but what are you? These types <laughs> of things. And but that feeling of feeling like an outsider and maybe how that shaped and influenced you. And of course, mm. obviously it sounds like there was a penultimate moment for you in twenty sixteen where something happened that we'll get to here in a second. But how has that being an outsider shaped you, maybe even played a role in your career? Because sometimes being the outsider actually can be an asset in many ways as well. Yeah. Oh, it's it has totally shaped my career. I think that I don't, you know, I haven't talked about this with a lot of other journalists because, and maybe that's because I'm usually in these venues, you know, I started in business journalism and then went to sports journalism. Both of those places are venues where it's basically, it's very white and it's very male. Um, so maybe, I, I don't know, I haven't really delved into these issues with like a lot of my peers, but I think feeling a little bit like being on the outside and looking in has attracted me probably to journalism in a sense that I was, not, I'm very comfortable with not being on like whatever the establishment is, you know, like in college, there was a very strong fraternity sorority system. I was very comfortable not kind of being a part of that. Like I was on the newspaper at the time, I'm really all four years. And I think having that kind of ability to distance yourself, or at least be comfortable with that kind of distance, not being in the like, I don't know, whatever, whatever the majority thing is, does make you I mean, it makes you comfortable with that role, because you're always asking as a journalist, you're pretty regularly asking questions that challenge the status quo, right? So if you're like a part of the status quo, I think it probably makes you and probably makes it harder to do your job. Yeah. But I mean, I, I of course enjoy camarade, like the camaraderie of the profession that I'm in, but I think it's totally affected me in terms of pursuing it to begin with, because I am a little bit comfortable with having that distance with whatever the status quo is. I'm, I'm also guessing it's probably been a gift. And I'm speaking from personal experience as well, but being an outsider, not necessarily feeling like you always belong or to this community mm. or that community, you can also see And I think here are things that other people don't. When you're not so enmeshed in something, when you're having that interview with someone and they say something, but you can naturally hear something underneath it, or you can sometimes even connect some dots that others can't connect based on your status. And of course, as a a journalist, you want to be as impartial and fair as possible. 
But I also mm. think that brings some connectivity to whoever your subject happens to be, because maybe at times they don't see uh, a perceived or obvious agenda that you may that they think this person may have. Yeah, yeah. I was actually just interviewing a source for a story about the NFL's Rooney Rule, which mandates that you need to interview at least one diverse candidate for any head coaching position or general manager position. And what this person essentially told me is the problem and and there I mean, she was very much in favor of, of the Rooney rule and expanding it. And the reason why, even on a football team, right, where you would think that everything is meritocracy and everything is all about letting that talent shine, you do not see that in the hiring, um, the hiring trends as of late. There, it's crazy. There's as, as many black coaches or as few black coaches in 2020 as there were in 2003 when they started the rooting rule. There's three. The XFL, which just started up, there's three black coaches and there's only eight teams. So this is a real issue for the NFL. And she, she told me something along the lines of when you hire everybody from the same you know, either the the son or the grandson of whoever, or you have everybody that has the same quote unquote pedigree in football, everybody has the same blind spot. Mm. And mistakes get amplified in organizations where everybody looks the same because nobody sees the huge mistake coming down the road. Everybody, you know, everybody thinks either it's okay or, or everybody just kind of ignores it. When you have a diverse or truly diverse slate of people, and this is not just a football team, but any organization, you're going, you're still, look, you're still going to make mistakes, but at least there'll be different mistakes. <laughs> they won't be the same mistake that just grows and grows and grows. And, you know, when you were talking about like you see things that maybe other people don't, I remember, and this is, this is a missed opportunity on my part. I mean, it wasn't my fault. I was moving at the time, but I remember when Bill Belichick actually had talked about, you know, he had signed a letter for, you know, supporting the president. And there was a little bit, and, you know, Massachusetts obviously is a very blue state. New England overall is pretty, you know, pretty much a democratic area. But I remember, watching the press conference where he had talked about that, you know, and I remember thinking nobody's asking him about how his players are supposed to feel. His locker room is 70% black and nobody is asking. And this is somebody who is a masterful coach, maybe the best coach of all time. And for, for a reason, because he, you know, he, he manages his players very well and he motivates them very well. But that just seemed like such an elephant in the room and that nobody was asking about. And there are things like that that I think regularly come up where I am happy to kind of have, I'm happy to have that that other viewpoint, you know, in a, in a way that's really relevant. And what a missed opportunity. And for folks who aren't familiar, Bill Belichick was the head coach of the New England Patriots and they've won so many Super Bowls and have been an, an organization that has, have achieved so much success. And I, you're right in terms of people missing that opportunity. And I do want to get to that moment in 2016 and how Martinique played a role in that. But before we get there, one more thing about that outsider role. One thing I've always been impressed by with you, mm-hmm. Michelle, and always like, holy moly, how, how does she have that? Is even way back when we met in 2005. I was always impressed that you, I felt like you had this courage <laughs> that a lot of people didn't have. I felt like you were willing to say things out loud to question maybe a coach Bill Belichick that no one else in the room would 
uh, a willing to stand for something in a way that others different didn't. And I don't know if that was just a confidence, something innate and natural you've always had. Mm. But I'm curious if being the quote unquote outsider, not always fitting in, if you will, played a role in you <laughs> being able to amplify your voice more, even from a young age. No, I was in a bad mood because I knew I had student loans to pay off, Nevs. <laughs> <laughs> So I just stood up and said my piece all the time. I I don't know. I mean, is there a specific moment that you're thinking about or just in general, just a vibe that you got? It's just, I think it's overall vibe, not not even a specific moment, but I was like, oh, she's, she, she, she's not worried about, this is a funny way to put it. She's not worried about your feelings. She's going to say, <laughs> she's in, not in a rude way, but she's going to say what's right. She's not going to do the, necessarily the politically correct thing and worry about your emotions or feelings. She's going to say what needs to be said, even if it's the elephant in the room and it makes every other reporter in the room feel awkward and cringe a little bit. <laughs> um, I think part of that was I had come into Columbia with a, a little bit of work experience. You know, I had done a little bit of producing in Chicago right before I went there. So I had, I had, been accustomed already to kind of, um, and I had a, I had a great first job. I'm actually having lunch with my boss from that first job tomorrow. We were all really encouraged. Everybody on the staff on this TV show in Chicago were all really encouraged to just speak our mind. So I think that's definitely, I think it probably came from that, but never under, underestimate the power of, uh, I hate to say this, but like, I hate to say this because it's, it's, it's not the best emotion to have as your prevailing one, but I think never under underestimate the power of using. Is it is it anger? I I I don't know if it's anger, and maybe a better word will come to my mind. But when I got to Columbia, one of the first thing that they told us Nevs, was our work is not going to be published. Like it would not be published. I think that first semester we were there. I actually don't know if our work was ever published when we were there, but I remember hearing that and thinking, because remember we were doing reports on like current events, like real things. Mm -hmm. I feel like we even did something, um, you know, we were doing like national stories, right? Like Hur Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane and Katrina. Yeah, there you go. I remember we were making, which by the way, in retrospect is so nuts that we were calling, you know, Hurricane Katrina is happening and we're calling people to get their quotes for something that's not going to run, but whatever. Ridiculous. Um, that was nuts. So I remember hearing that and it just, it really like drew me. It just, it was a bummer. It was a bummer for me. I wish I could be more articulate about that. But, and I realized in that moment how much joy I derived from in journalism. It's not just storytelling to yourself that makes it satisfying, right? We're not in a room talking to ourselves. We are trying to interface and interact with another human being on something that we think is important. And I think that like at its core, that's kind of like what's drawn me to be a journalist all of these years. And when you take that away and you're doing it in a vacuum, I was not happy. And I sort of channeled that, maybe the better word is indignation. I sort of channeled that indignation into, you're not going to tell me how this works because I know how it works. You know, you're at that age where it's like you, you have like the perfect mix of, you know, righteousness, <laughs> maybe a little bit of a lack of humility. Maybe in that situation, I should have been a little bit more humble when I was, you know, pushing back on our professors or what have you. 
I think you were um, doing, the, doing the right thing. And, and there are a lot of times when you look at human history, whether it's the civil rights movements or the fight for women, women's rights, et cetera, where a lot of folks didn't say anything, but you were fighting in that moment for what you believed to be right. It wasn't just anything random. It was something that you believed to be important. And we were putting a lot of good time and energy behind something that, like you said, would never see the, the light of day when we had all the tools and resources to make that happen. Mm-hmm. But let, let's mm-hmm. do this now. So you mentioned earlier, you talk, talk about that, that magnificent experience you had in Mar- Martinique with Mr. Ragu. Monsieur Ragu. Monsieur Ragu. Yeah. And the roasted goat delicacy that you could not appreciate for what it was back then. This guy probably spent, <laughs> you know, half a year's uh, uh, income probably. on that goat. Probably. And so what was that experience in 2016 where this kind of, I'm, I'm, I don't want, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but did it come full circle in some, some regard? Yeah. So, you know, I went to, look, long story short, Columbia, I ended up working in the business press for a while. I was working for Bloomberg television and always, and then I went to ESPN from there because I had covered sports at Bloomberg TV. But like, I think always the the ethos I guess I had at that point in my career was try to be the reporter that producers want to see. Mm. And by that, I mean, in every aspect, try to sound like someone that they want to hear, try to look like someone that they want to look at. And I felt like if you look at my headshots, you know, everybody that is in this business takes a headshot pretty much every year. And if you look at my headshots from that time, I mean, it's pretty much, it's, it's, you would, you would, you could blend me in. I'll just say that you could blend me in, except for maybe the hair color. You could pretty much like blend me in into a whole lineup of other business reporters that were like at the New York Stock Exchange uh, or the NASDAQ or, you know, uh, the studios and Bloomberg Television. And there was, they're just, I, I don't, I don't know what your experience I don't know if you've had this experience in TV as well, Nevs, but I felt like just the vibe, the TV vibe is always just like, look the part. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And for me, I I get, I think I confused look the part would be less of an individual, mm. you know? And so I, I looked the part, you know, dressed the part, sounded like the part. I always felt like I did the best reporting. Um, I couldn't, I, I did in that, in that circumstance and, you know, my career progressed and my career progressed at ESPN and, you know, I was, I am still, um, still thrilled about it. But, you know, when you're in a job where your contracts renew every few years, there's always going to be a lot, a little bit of anxiety around contract renewal time. And I was talking to my sister about this and she's in HR and she's really enmeshed in so many of these issues. I'm so thankful, you know, that she, she lives in Chicago as well. And, you know, we can often use each other for sounding boards. And it was just one of my moments. It was just one of those weak and kind of vulnerable moments where I, I was worried. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do, continue doing at ESPN. I had just moved to Chicago. I was further away from kind of like the power centers, I guess, of TV, even though I was very happy to be in this market, to be back in my hometown. I didn't know like what the contract negotiations would look like, like my agent. I had just uh, left my agent. So, you know, there was a lot just kind of up in the air. I didn't feel like I could really lean when you're when you're feeling anxiety about a job or you're feeling like um when you're when you're in a place of fear, I think it's hard to like 
it's hard to be honest about that with people who are your peers, you know, at your job, let's say. Absolutely. Right? Like, I can't be stressing. I can't be stressing to one of my coworkers or like a producer or another reporter on the job about about this, even though they probably feel the same way. So and certainly not somebody unless I was really close to them. And so she said, have you considered she's like, have you considered um, joining some other organization that's not ESPN. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, hmm. I don't mean like looking for another job necessarily, but have you considered joining like a network of other people who are maybe feeling the same way you are, whether it's, you know, women's group, Asian group, there's got to be something. And I was like, yeah, they've been trying to get me to join Asian American Journalists Association for a while, but I don't see myself like that. I'm not somebody who's going to separate myself. And she said, but that's what you are. Ooh, <laughs> like you <wow>. are Asian. <laughs> so that's little sis, right? Yeah. You know, that is joining a network of individuals who share your background doesn't mean that you're shutting out any other network. That's just another part of you, you know? And I just, I always avoided it because I didn't, you know, I just did not want to, to define myself that way. And I didn't want to be seen as like different, which is such a, a ridiculous thing. Like if you look different, you're different. You're different. <laughs> right? You have to accept that. So I contacted um, one of the other, um, one of my other coworkers actually at ESPN. This is like a, yeah, this is what have been in 2016 and just asked him like, hey, what, what would I need to do to be involved? And he's like, that's great. You know, um, come to our conference. It was like in Philly that year, I think. And I went and I had, I just went as like an observer and it was great because my work was fully supportive. They knew I was doing this. Um, and my boss, you know, was like, this is great. You know, this is something that we're happy for you to be involved with. And it just, my eyes totally opened when I, when I joined this group and I realized the significance of having a network of a network outside your network. If that makes sense. hundred percent. It sounds like also you realize some of the tribulations, challenges, different things you are experiencing. It's a reminder that you're not the only one going through this. And I just love the maturity and the awesome insight and words from your sister to, to reinforce to you to say something that I'm sure you would say to someone else, but that's what you are still. That's, <laughs> that's what, what you, you are. You are. <laughs> it's funny how sometimes we can resist. We can give a, to use a football analogy, we can give the stiff arm mm. to something that we most need. That is us. And inherently there is a vulnerability there, but I, I see it because like you said, growing up, you always were that that outsider. You weren't surrounded by necessarily people that always say, look like you and different communities. And I just want to briefly just add in, you know, you said in certain industries, it's all about looking the part. But when we conform like that, we're, we're less than, we're no longer the individual that we are. That special totally. thought we have. And as a speaker, I can tell you for how long I wore the speaker uniform of crisp jeans, white button down shirt and nice blazer, right? Yep. That, that yep. uniform. And because you look the part. And yeah. at some point, I remember the day, the first time I got on stage in jeans, like a good pair of jeans, of course, some dope course. sneakers and a, and a crisp, great t-shirt. Not yep. button down, not blazer. And that day that I got on the stage and I felt, I'm like, this client is going to fire me. They hired this professional speaker and here I am coming in like I would meeting friends. And I found that in that moment, <laughs> when I came up more like me, the audience who was 
in the blazers and ties and blouses and business suits. They actually respected me more. They appreciated yeah. me more because this, that's who this dude is. He's being someone that maybe I don't have the audacity or nerve to be. So I appreciate your willingness to do that. And I'll just add one more thing. And I'm curious if you can speak on this. I love talking to people when they're watching television or listening to a news report. And I always look at people and after they hear a report and I'll say, you know, in real life, she doesn't sound anything like that. You know that, you know that anchor, you know that anchor on the local news? That dude doesn't talk like that at all. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, that's not how he speaks. But we have this voice, this reporter voice. And I'm not referencing you, by the way, but we have the, we learned even the speaker voice or the professional a reporter voice. And I just love watching people evolve when they're still professional. They're still dope at what they do, but you start to see more of them. And I'm curious, I'm curious based on after joining that organization, getting more involved, have you found more quote unquote of you show mm-hmm. up in your work? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. I think that it's almost, it is introduced such an interesting and for me personally, satisfying, extremely satisfying facet to everything else that I do. You know, I'm a general assignment reporter at ESPN. So basically if something is breaking, I go there, right? If there is, if there is news to cover, no matter what the sport, no matter what the league, no matter what, you know, even the geographical destination, I basically go there. And for many, many years, that was my, my specialty was like a little bit of everything. And ever since I started really engaging in these issues of, of multiculturalism and talking to other people about um, just how, how important that is, not just, you know, not just on for the business, but also just on a, a human level, I've been led to so many other stories. And I feel like the stories that I've been most proud of in the last year are ones that have expressed those values of diversity and inclusion and really fully telling the story of what it's like to be an athlete in the year 2020, you know? And, um, you know, one story that comes to mind that I just did for the, that I did for the undefeated, which is the African American, um, you know, it's a mix of, of African American sort of centric sports culture, art, what have you. It's a website um, that's under the ESPN umbrella. It's called The Undefeated. And I did something. I actually pitched the story to, quote unquote, regular sports center. (laughs) And it was about Tim Anderson. And he's a shortstop for the Chicago White Sox. And guess what? In in the middle of Bronzeville, which is a historic African-American community in Chicago, which is where the White Sox are, they have one african-american player on that roster wow one and it is a picture of baseball it it is really it is a microcosm of what's happening in baseball and its connection with african-american community which has historically been strong but has waned for a lot of different reasons and tim really 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 cares about that and really really cares about being a mentor to youth in chicago specifically black youth in chicago that do want to follow in his footsteps um, and providing kind of that um, pathway going forward. So I did a story. I, I ended up doing the story. I pitched the story to SportsCenter. They took a pass on it. And then the undefeated, I'm so lucky um, that they were, they expressed interest in it. And guess what? It ended up 
it ended up on ESPN anyway because they liked it so much. You know what I'm saying about everybody having the same blind spots? Like, wow. so that's a story that goes through kind of the traditional process. It ends up being produced by a group of people that recognize this for um, the significance of it. And then the, the, the main group ends up liking it so much, they end up promoting it. So, so it's been, yeah. And like, listen, I don't want to disparage anybody um, who's working on the ESPN side. And to their credit, there was somebody on the ESPN regular side, so to speak, sports center side that spoke up and said, we need to do this, you know, and luckily, there was a producer there from the undefeated who also spoke up and said, we yes, we will take it, we'll do it, we'll do this story. And that's how it ended up happening. So it's, you know, it's stuff like this, I'm working on, or I just did something on the Rooney rule, again, for the undefeated. And, you know, I hate to um, I hate to reference, you know, such a sad, sad story from this week, but a lot of people don't know about Kobe Bryant gave a million dollars to the Smithsonian, the National Museum of African American Art and Culture in Washington, D.C. Um, he really cared about that stuff. You don't mm. really, you know, you don't hear about it that much because you hear so much about the championships uh, elsewhere, but that was important to him. And I'm hoping I'm pitching a story right now to the undefeated to doing that um, to, you know, the, like the stories that really resonate with me right now are athletes who are embracing their full selves and that Kobe story. I'm hoping I'll be able to turn that into something. And those are good soon. And I'm hearing more and more stories about him that people didn't talk about that. He did. He did out of his humility. He didn't want them to talk about, but now we're hearing about them. And, I just love that you're being able to tell stories like that and the ones you will continue to tell because you were willing in that moment. And and I'm sure what was a vulnerable moment with your sister, with some angst and anxiety of what's next, to have some humility to fully embrace who you are. And even Mm -hmm. that great example you just gave, you were initially rejected with the story, but because you pursued it and you found the interest, they came back and said, yes, I want it. So right now there's a listener right now who probably is yet to fully embrace their story. And I encourage them to know that when you fully embrace it, I think great things can happen. doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight, but we can start to show up a different way. We can start to influence others in other ways. And even that rejection that we may get time and time again, eventually that door will open. Um, Not to sound corny or or cliche, Michelle, but as we get ready to bring this to an end, um, you're a reporter. You mentioned you're a general assignment reporter, so you can cover Mm -hmm. a variety of of, of anything, uh, all different types of assignments. And what I'm reminded of in this story is I hear your journey, someone who had that experience prior to going to graduate school for journalism, who was a business journalist, who then found her way working in sports, when I'm sure a lot of people said, what is a business journalist doing working in sports? I'm just reminded that life has assignments as well. And there are different chapters of our lives that, that lead to other chapters and different things that will open for us and, and be exposed to us. Now, we don't always know where that assignment is going to be a year from now or three years from now. But mm. I look back at you in 2011, I think, when you started the ESPN, if we would have said, hey, in 2019, 2020, you'd be covering these types of stories, you may have said, what are you talking about? <laughs> what do you, what, no, no, no. And but I'm just amazing that the metamorphosis that, that we can go through individually if if we're willing to be humble and have some humility and uh, lean, in a, lean in a direction that may be a little bit uncomfortable. Mm, yeah, because that's how we learn. That's how we learn. We learn by being uncomfortable. We learn by being uncomfortable. Well, Michelle, I can't. I said, Michelle, I need to say steal. Yeah. Yeah, Nevs. Listen, 
You're the first person I've interviewed that I let talk as much as they did because you're awesome at it and you tell great stories. And for oh, me, I, I, I apologize for that, oh, by the way. I sure. just kept I just kept going. But oh, no, no apologies are needed because for me, selfishly, but also for the listeners, there's going to be so much, I think, connective tissue for people that are that are listening. They're going to hear about your arc, your trajectory to hear about that, that poignant moment of having that conversation with your sister to you know, fully embracing it, accepting who you are and not running away from it and how that has allowed you to shine and continue to shine brighter moving forward. So for me, this has been a joy. I thank you for joining me for this episode. For those people right now who, who may not be super familiar with you and your work, where would you point them to to, to learn more about you? Yeah, I am all over social media, although I have to say that I have varying degrees of activity on them depending on just what I've got going on. So I would say the probably the most active place that I'm in is Twitter at ESPN Michelle with one L and then all, the same handle for everything else. I'm on Instagram and even Facebook, if that, if that floats your boat. Even Facebook. And hey, y'all, when y'all see Michelle on TV, do what I do. Take a picture with your phone, then tweet it to her just to say, <laughs> Antonio told me to tell you what's up. So, Michelle, once again, thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to seeing you in person sometime in the near future. Yes. Thank you so much, Nevs. I really appreciate this. And I love seeing this manifestation of kind of everything that you've been working on in your life. I love hearing about it, not just, you know, your, your random updates, but also this, this podcast, this podcast is a manifestation of, you know, so many of the things that you've been working on in your own values. So I love that you had me on and yes, we have to see each other in person. Like when you guys come to Chicago or when I'm on the West coast, just not in the month of January. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen. And I can tell you right now, I'm already having a visualization of doing a live, the best thing event in front of an audience. And you're yes. going to be a guest on that. So yes. well, hey, take care of yourself and thank you again. Sure. Thanks for listening to the Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 